0: Welcome every now, everyone, uh, my name is Jasmine Slootjes. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute Europe. And I'd love to welcome you today to this webinar called Migrant Integration Governance After the Pandemic, Lasting Adaptations. Uh, first, a few housekeeping notes before we are getting started. If you have any technical problems, please email uh, events at migrationpolicy.org. We will have q and A Q&A at the end of the call. There will not be a voice Q&A, so please type any questions you may have into the Q&A box. This webinar highlights the key findings from our brand new report, which is available on MPI website. The COVID Catalyst, Learning from Pandemic-Driven Innovations in Immigrant Integration Policy. This report explores the lessons and innovations sparked by the COVID-19 pandemic. These lessons can help inform more emergency responsive and cost-effective immigrant integration policies going forward. Learning from these adaptations is crucial, especially now many actors are facing the next challenge, to welcome in many countries unprecedented numbers of refugees from war-torn Ukraine. But before reflecting on the lessons we may learn, let me take you back to where it all started. The COVID-19 pandemic and its economic fallout have triggered the perfect storm for immigrant integration, Posing disproportionate risks to migrants and refugees while upending policymakers' and practitioners' usual policy toolbox. For example, by ending in person uh, in-person service delivery and obstructing the usual form of in person collaboration. This perfect storm required rapid and agile adaptations. What can we learn from these moving forward and moving beyond the pandemic and, ch- and answering the challenges ahead? First, it seems very clear from the report that the the forced digital shift is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, moving online unexpectedly increased participation in online integration and language courses among migrants, while this was not expected at all. Moreover, at times it facilitated very new connections between different stakeholders and launched new partnerships, for example, across policy areas. Yet, at the same time, it cuts the most vulnerable off those with limited access to technology and limited digital literacy did not have access anymore either to their integration services and now online service delivery or did not get a seat at the table when important policies were made online and in online conversations. In order to make most of the digital shift in a more inclusive way, we need to close the digital gap and invest in equal access to technology and promote digital literacy. A mix of both these new opportunities created by this online shift, but also very new needs triggered by the pandemic, sparked innovation in three different areas in migrant integration. On the one hand, we see a big shift in the different stakeholders that are involved. This often already fueled ongoing trends that started prior to the pandemic. Two patterns that we, for example, see is an increased role of civil society and an increased role of local governments, of cities they are often on the front line and they were often filling the gaps left by sometimes uh, the policies of of national governments. We also see an increased recognition of the role of civil society partners and the local level and also a formalization of the partnerships between them. This brings us to the second shift that we see and that is a shift in coordination and partnerships. And we really see that it was a very blossoming time for multi-stakeholder platforms some states could hit the ground running during the pandemic. They already had existing platforms bringing different stakeholders together. Uh, An example, I think we will hear from Canada from someone uh, speaking here today. While others lost precious time because they had to launch brand new collaboration platforms during a crisis and had to build trust, new communication channels and ways to collaborate. Besides the stakeholders that were involved and the partnerships uh, among them, we also see a big shift in the issues and priorities that these stakeholders were working on. I will just highlight a few. There's many more that you can find in the report on our website. Uh, One interesting example, I think, is the uh, pandemic required increased funding flexibility. It required uh, some changing in reporting requirements, the timelines, and also how the funding could be spent many of the policymakers that we spoke to really welcomed this flexible model of funding and really saw a lot of opportunity to use this more flexible model to make immigrant integration policies more emergency responsive in the future and to keep some of the elements that were adopted during the pandemic. We also saw that the pandemic showed how governments often fail to effectively reach out to and communicate with migrant and refugee communities especially during a public health crisis, this became very clear. They experimented with innovative outreach methods involving community members or religious leaders, migrants and refugees themselves, and also leveraging more innovative forms. For example, social media, uh, WhatsApp, TikTok, Facebook, you name it. In some places, official government uh, communication even started taking place over WhatsApp. And also here, there's a lot of appetite and willingness to continue using these models moving forward. Um, What will come uh, next after this period of pandemic inspired innovation to prevent a boom bust cycle? So first a boom of a lot of innovation and then all that innovation getting lost. We need to evaluate all these promising adaptations and see what really works and why and under what conditions. We also need to scale up and share these best practices so others can benefit from it and make sure that they're more sustainable for the future going forward. And then, of course, we also need to dedicate long-term funding uh, to make sure that these new innovations can stay in place and sustainable for the future. And in addition, uh, there could be a formalization of some of the very new partnerships that were launched during the pandemic. And we could learn from some of the existing partnership multi-stakeholder platforms that already exist in other countries. I'm very happy uh, to have all of you here today and especially our uh, panelists. Uh, They will be presenting examples really on the ground from how, how did the pandemic change their way of working and how can these adaptations maybe inform more effective ways moving towards the future. We have perspectives from both sides of the Atlantic and also both from the state level and more the local level. Um, And I would love to start with our first speaker, Uh, this is Paula Pinkholm, she's the Senior Director of Settlement and Integration Policy from Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. Uh, Paula, I would love to hear a little bit more from you about uh, how this collaboration and different uh, partnerships really increased during during the pandemic how did stakeholder coordination change in Canada? And could you maybe give some interesting examples?
1: Thank you, Yasmin. It's my pleasure to be here today with all of you through this virtual event and to participate in this international discussion. I'm very happy to share some brief thoughts on Canada's settlement program and the challenges and lessons learned from, this, from our pandemic experience. Before I do so, I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am speaking to you from the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. This is, important way, this is an important way to recognize the colonial history that brought settlers to this land, as well as the ongoing process of colonialism that continues to exist in Canada. Within the Canadian government, we continue to strive to honor the history culture, and rights of Indigenous peoples in the work that we do. In terms of the the Canada Settlement Program, I'll start with some brief context on the many actors involved in the Canadian settlement and integration landscape. Our federal settlement program uses a third-party service delivery model in which the Canadian government provides funding to over 550 settlement provider organizations across the country, who in turn provide services to newcomers who have been accepted to permanently settle in Canada. This includes resettled refugees. We provide services to help newcomers learn English or French, find employment, and build social connections within their new communities. Beyond these settlement organizations, other members of civil society play an important role in Canada. For example, private citizens can volunteer to support the settlement of privately settled. Uh, privately sponsored refugees. Since immigration in Canada is shared between the federal government and Canada's provinces and territories, provincial and territorial governments are also key in settlement and integration. They provide important settlement services and they are also responsible for other services that are essential to newcomer integration, such as education and health. Turning now to your question, Yasmin, When the pandemic began, all of us had to learn by doing. None of us had a playbook at hand, and there was not much time to do in-depth research or consultations before making decisions. With so many actors involved in the Canadian settlement sector, it was key for us to work together in our pandemic response. Our national surveys and research showed that newcomers were hit harder overall by COVID than other Canadians. This is because they were more likely to be exposed to the virus because they were overrepresented in essential occupations that supported Canadians through the pandemic, such as healthcare or in grocery stores. They also experienced challenges in accessing information on prevention and vaccination, which was often needed in languages other than English and French. Our most immediate challenge was that settlement services needed to adapt quickly to a remote service delivery model rather than the traditional in-person services we were used to offering to newcomers. Looking back, we see that our ability to continue to support newcomers during this period was the result of a number of collaborative actions taken by our department and by Canada's settlement sector. Early on in the pandemic, our department worked with settlement providers to lessen administrative pressures to allow them to adapt their service delivery. In particular, they were provided funding flexibilities to purchase cell phones and laptops for both staff and client use, which allowed access to virtual settlement services, such as online information and orientation sessions, uh, language training placements, expanded distance learning, and live help for teachers developing online courses. As such, we saw the settlement sector rapidly adjust to local health guidelines and shift the delivery of most in-person services to alternative delivery modes, either by phone or through multiple virtual formats. In recognition of the importance of coordination and communication, we also increased the frequency of our twice yearly governance meetings. This is the National Settlement and Integration Council. It's it's an important forum for us comprised of delegates from across Canada's settlement sector, provincial and territorial government officials, as well as the federal government. These frequent gatherings helped us share best practices, discuss challenges, and determine solutions together. This was especially important at the beginning of the pandemic when public health policies were changing quickly and often, and no one really understood what was going on. In this and other ways, Canada's settlement sector played a truly critical role in the COVID-19 response with settlement service providers demonstrating resilience and innovation throughout. In the early months of the pandemic, we worked with and through this large network of organizations to help provide federal and provincial public health guidance to newcomers with a focus on ensuring that multilingual information on COVID was available for those who needed it. And as an aside, This provision of multilingual information was an entirely new area for us. Uh, We function in English and French, uh, so we didn't have this capacity before. Later in the pandemic, settlement providers also supported COVID vaccine uptake, helping newcomers with vaccine registration and hosting pop-up vaccination clinics in areas with higher COVID numbers. And they worked directly with health authorities to raise awareness of newcomer challenges, including those faced by individuals with low official language or digital, liter- digital literacy skills. If I can just briefly provide another example, since 2008, Canada has invested in local coordination to help foster welcoming communities through local planning tables known as local immigration partnerships and their francophone equivalent, Les Réseaux en Immigration francophone. These partnerships also contributed significantly to the COVID response. For example, a local immigration partnership in Western Canada secured tablets and cell phones to distribute to newcomers to access community services. They also conducted a survey to map the impact of COVID on newcomers in the area and hosted a community discussion on how to address the gaps and service that were identified. In all these ways, the pandemic clearly highlighted the importance of the relationship and the settlement infrastructure that we have built over the years. And We are proud of that collective effort that helped to ensure newcomers, especially those at increased risk of isolation, were as well supported as possible.
0: Thank you so much for these uh, interesting examples and to really show how uh, you really have to think on your feet, right? Suddenly everything is changing and without time to reflect, you have to just shift entirely how you are providing your services. I'm very curious because you mentioned you touched on a a lot of changes. So from from providing more multilingual information to these uh, more local planning tables, uh, some initiatives that already existed and were intensified. Others uh, that were really new. Uh, I'm very curious if when you reflect of the future and if you think like what will stay, do you think there's any of these changes will remain and uh, And what will be the most effective way to make sure that what has changed to make that most effective and sustainable going forward? What is needed to make these changes sustainable? Thank you. It's a
1: good question. In Canada, we have seen through the successful response of our settlement sector during the pandemic, that delivery models and approaches can change rapidly to meet evolving client needs. A particular focus for our settlement program now is how to build on work what worked well during the pandemic, and how best to continue to support clients in this post pandemic era. In terms of the successful pivot by Canada's settlement service providers from a bricks and mortar approach to one where online delivery of services dominated during the pandemic, we have some uh, we've had some interesting findings to date. Evidence indicates that many of our newcomer clients are able to access online services, and that for some, it's actually easier to access services online because they no, no longer need to worry about things like transportation or childcare, for example. However, some clients do face official language or digital literacy barriers, and we know that these clients will benefit more from in person services. Moving forward, our department is advancing our thinking on how to balance the preferences of some clients for online services with the needs of other clients for in-person supports. We know that in-person services and those human interactions are so important for lasting integration and community building connections. But we also know from talking to our stakeholders that people like the digital experience and want to continue accessing services online. So with this in mind, we are continuing to identify tools and best practices to support uh, the continuation of online service delivery so that our service providers are equipped to deliver high quality settlement services to our clients, no matter the mode of delivery. Our goal in this work is to build on innovations in digital settlement service delivery, as well as other ways that we continue to to respond to the evolving needs of newcomers. We want to ensure that Canada, that our settlement sector is well positioned to respond effectively to future crises. In broader terms, I would say that as Canada's immigration priorities continue to evolve, we have confidence that the Canadian settlement sector will continue to adapt. It is as it has done in the past to remain aligned with the needs of both the newcomers and the communities that they support. I'll maybe just add that partnerships have really been key to our collective successes over the last two years. And as we look forward to continuing in this same spirit, benefiting from the knowledge and expertise of our many partners, including our international partners, uh, is a way for us to ensure that we stay innovative in this important work, which is why events such as today's are so valuable.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Paula. And I'm sure during the Q&A, we have more time to reflect on these changes and what that may mean and how we could bring, bring them more into practice. Uh, I would like to now introduce uh, our second pal- uh, panelist, Rossella Nicoletti. She, she's a senior project and policy coordinator uh, in social affairs uh, at EuroCities. Uh, And I'm very curious, it's already a bit in the name of your organization, cities. So we're definitely refocusing a little bit also to the more local level. And we already talked a little bit about the increased role uh, of cities. And we also talked a little bit about partnerships and different platforms that allow uh, different stakeholders to collaborate and coordinate during times of an emergency. Um, so I'm very curious to, if you could tell us a little bit more about how the pandemic impacted the usual way of working of EuroCities and how the EuroCities network allowed maybe your member cities to tackle the challenges triggered by the pandemic.
2: Thank you, Yasmin. Uh, thank you for having me here. Um, maybe we start uh, with a very short presentation of Uh, what EuroCity does, what EuroCity is. Uh, Eurocities is uh, the network of uh, major cities. And um, uh, we have more than 200 uh, members, cities in 39 countries representing over 130 million uh, people working together to assure a good quality of life for all. So our cities work on different topics. Uh, And uh, as a network, we try try to support them as as much as possible. And we provide the instruments to do that. And of course they work also on migrant integration. They exchange knowledge and good practice um, in a a working group on migration and integration with over 150 cities. And uh, we also manage projects uh, through an initiative uh, integrating cities. Uh, uh, there is a partnership with uh, the European Commission and over 40 signatory cities. Um, so going back to your question, um, yes, the pandemic definitely impacted our usual way of working. It was not only for us as a, a European network, it was for the cities as well. Uh, this is uh, no news. Um, we had to move all our activities online. We had to adapt our capacity building methodology. Um, for example, uh, back in February, March, 2020, we had to transfer uh, and to move all of our mutual learning activities uh, um, online to allow cities to continue to share good practice and, and knowledge. In the meantime, the cities, were doing the same. They were uh, moving. They were transferring their uh, services to the digital way as um, as much as they as they, they could. Um, I think your cities did a great great job to to um, to allow um, cities uh, also to continue exchange information, especially in, in a moment like uh, Paula rightly said. We had no manual. We, it was a completely new situation for everyone, and. Um, Uh, I have to say this this was also uh, um, definitely um, thanks to our city's adaptability. And during the pandemic, uh, cities were overwhelmed. Uh, They had to provide a first response to to the pandemic and to a lot of issues. So food distribution, um, ensure uh, safe and social distancing. Uh, taking care of the vulnerable groups and uh, still ensure access, for example, education uh, online. And uh, there was still uh, an incredible interest in uh, our members in continuing uh, our activities. Um, So we organized a lot of um, uh, city dialogues, uh, mutual learning events uh, in the social affairs area and many other areas. And cities, they really needed to, um, they wanted to hear about how other cities were facing similar challenges raised by the, by the pandemic. Um, and they wanted to share ideas and uh, they have been doing this for the last two years and uh, and, uh, and a half. And we saw also a lot of innovation there. As for Eurocities, um, Eurocities developed an online platform. It's called COVIDnews.eurocities.eu. I invite you to, just go and and, uh, scroll it down. You have uh, more than, um, uh, I I think, hundreds and hundreds of examples of how cities uh, uh, brought innovation to their uh, practice and their work and their policy, um, even in a few months from the start of the the pandemic. Uh, Of course, I mean, um, it was not all smooth. uh, We had some issues all uh, we had as a European uh, network, we had uh, also, we heard from, from our cities. Um, for some cities, it became, uh, as, as as I said, it was uh, uh, a matter of lack of capacity. Uh, definitely, uh, uh, also the budget was not there to, to make sure of all the digital um, transformation that, that was needed and um, for example, in terms of the activities that use is carried out and the mutual learning, um, I mean, of course you lose in that learning about, about best practices from site visits. So online site visits that we still organize and we try to do, but it, they're not the same. And, and, and we know that. The, uh, nevertheless, the online element, and, uh, the urgency also of the, of the situation, um, I think allowed also for a quick, a quick response to to me, uh, to to the needs of our members, our cities. Um, also, the sharing of ideas and information um, really helped cities understanding. Okay, maybe there's uh, something done in another country, in another city that could be used in our local context. And um, also the federal. Uh, moving all of our activities online, enable many more cities to attend events, training, which are learning as I said, that uh, they would have not be able to attend because require travel. And in many cases, uh, uh, city staff is not, is not always able to travel or they have to select only maybe one or two events. Um, the, um, so we we had more cities joining our our activities, our events, our meetings, uh, and that really built trust and uh, also enabled to 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 hear from different uh, local contexts that sometimes were not always showcased in our physical events. Um, and in addition, in addition to that, we had more city experts, those who really work on the ground. They would not generally uh, travel to Brussels or to other cities uh, um, to share their knowledge. And they could finally attend online from the comfort of their their home, um, our our events, and they could speak to other cities. We had a lot of bilateral meetings, for example, amongst our uh, city chairs. We have different chairs of of our fora. And and also um, they had the online platform and And uh, we had a dedicated space, a, a sort of internal platform also that is not accessible to the public, where they could share even very sensitive confidential information. And this has definitely changed the way we work. And even now they were going back slowly but surely to physical events. we do maintain the online element. And I think this also is uh, definitely bound to stay in uh, in our cities. Um, those uh, services that have been moved uh, online, uh, in many cases, are there. Um, I just uh, recently went on a study uh, visit and I heard from one of the cities that was also partner of one of our project, um, projects that um, they, they resorted to a sort of online uh, uh, booking system uh, for appointments um for migrant communities and, and, and refugees, and they are of course thinking to keep it, uh, but of course uh, with changes, uh, with uh, with some flexibilities. Um, and the good thing is that um, it comes to that. Um, we had that in place for the pandemic and we had it there when the Ukraine war started. So that was extremely useful. Uh, just to make a last example and, and then I stopped uh, we received a request from um, a couple of cities uh, on the front line of the Ukrainian refugees crisis. And they really were asking for information on crisis management and good practices on welcoming. So on the reception of uh, a high flow, uh, huge amount of refugees. Um, and we organized an online meeting uh, with other cities, those cities who had the experience back in 2015, on the topic, and they were able just to connect online and share information, and the meeting proved to be very valuable. That very meeting that would have been extremely complicated would have taken double the time, maybe three times uh, the, uh, the amount of uh, time to organize it.
0: Great, yes, thank you so much for all these really rich examples, and it's all such a, a, a broad spread of different types of, of changes and examples and you're already linking a little bit to what the lasting uh, impact is uh, moving forward uh, and you're already touching upon Ukraine and I'm curious also to reflect a little bit more on Uh, zooming out a little bit, looking at the entire playing field of of migrant integration, all the different actors involved. It's a very uh, complex playing field, government actors, non-government actors. We've also increased private sector, but then zooming in specifically to the local level cities, uh, we see them uh, taking center stage during the pandemic, but also now, if you look at the response to those displaced from Ukraine. And I also have been hearing from... uh, for example, representatives from the European Commission or other international organizations, that there's an increased recognition also of the role of uh, cities. Could you maybe reflect a little bit more on that and maybe how you've seen it change over time uh, and what you predict for the future and maybe any advice you have to facilitate multi-level collaboration and to really leverage the the expertise uh, that cities have?
2: Yes, I, I agree with you. There's an increased recognition. Um, there's been for a while now, I would say, maybe in the last uh, five or six years. It was not like that, especially migration and integration. Um, I, I would say uh, national governments for sure, but also the EU institutions will not think of cities when talking about migration. And migration policies. So uh, for, for many years and uh, uh, prior to actually my, uh, my joining uh, Euro, EuroCities, um, I, I know that colleagues here have been working relentlessly to highlight the crucial role of, of, of cities. And I have to say that the recognized uh, role is uh, uh, not only but also uh, the result of very hard work of EuroCities and other cities um, cities networks, so. um, I think it's um, yeah definitely um, um, it's going to continue. Um, Covid impact is still unfolding, and now the Ukraine war also came at a moment uh, where cities' budget and uh, capacity was already stretched to a, to a maximum. Um, and we know that COVID-19 has exacerbated inequalities, brought to visibility existing ones, and also brought new, uh, new issues. So cities had to be in partnerships. And um, uh, when we speak with our members, we know that they could not uh, do without the support of civil society organizations, and and now also the role of migrant-led organizations and. And involvement of migrant communities um, is, uh, is, is extremely uh, important, so high on, on the agenda at, at, local, at local level. Of course, there's a lot of work to be done, but it is, a, it is a start. And um, um, in terms of the role of the of the cities, of uh, cities in migrant integration governments, the pandemic has also shown how much the cities have done and how much they have to do. Uh, Because the first response to crisis usually falls on local authorities. Uh, And and cities had, for example, during the the pandemic, they had to provide safe accommodation to migrants and refugees, including undocumented migrants. Um, Undocumented migrants, we all knew they existed, but they were never mentioned or very rarely mentioned in the uh, political agenda. They are never included in funding, uh, for for example. Uh, Nevertheless, cities had to find a solution to those, for example, living on the streets and provide uh, shelter, accommodation. Uh, Cities had also to set up new and effective means for communication and information. So for example, I heard from uh, most of our members, I have to say, so from the North, from Ulu um, to to Barcelona, to, uh, to Milan, uh, to Barso and back, uh, to, to Paris, um, a huge efforts of, of cities. And these are only a few, uh, few examples of really understanding that um, information, especially in relation to um, uh, COVID-19 safety rules and social and physical distancing, and vaccination and um, and all the rest needed to be translated, for example, to the most spoken uh, languages in migrant communities, and uh, um, for example, also trying to find uh, some mediators and translators in the communities um, to make sure that the, also the flow of information was uh, uh, was also there and and. Uh, uh, would uh, then bring the important, crucial information about uh, health. Uh, cities had to provide unemployment support, job matching, access to education and services, and and try to address the digital gap. Because one of the things that emerge, and like you said, your report is going to alight that um, we uh, we finally uh, finally, but we knew it just that if we then during the, the pandemic it became very clear that many migrants have. Uh, no access to digital tools. And for example, migrant children had either no instruments. so no laptops, no tablets to follow uh, online uh, uh, lessons and uh, to do their homework, for example. And in particular reception in reception, um, children in reception centers they had no access to education online. And uh, so what we think is, is is that this is going to uh, to continue. The role of cities is not going to disappear. What they do, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's going to stay. And also the, the fact that we are um, together, we are, we are learning new methods and new way of working, and we're gonna continue. Now, cities are going to continue to um, uh, implement them, but then cities need the right tools from, of course, from governments, uh, from the EU institutions, make sure that they adapt rapidly and uh, they also can access additional funding. That's why your cities have been lobbying for that access to funding for cities now for for a while. I think we had a couple of steps back, uh, maybe when we were designing, um, I mean, national governments were designing uh, national recovery plans and not all member states were involved in uh, local authorities local and regional authorities in the design of these plans uh, Luckily, like like you said our um, pledge to have cities at the table um, when important decision uh, policy decision making is is taken uh, uh, i think has been heard uh, uh, by the European Parliament in particular by the, the European commission so it's very recent the fast care was just approved by EG home and we hope that continue in this direction and uh, also the institution continue to support cities in their efforts on migrant integration.
0: Great yeah no we of course also saw uh, that now a portion of the AME funding is also of course allocated to to cities so we do see definitely also some structural changes and recognition of the role of cities there. Uh, I want to uh, First, acknowledge that unfortunately uh, one of our panelists was not able to join. But I'm. I think we have so much to cover, so it will leave us more time to discuss with our other two panelists. Um, and I would like to pick up on two topics that you just mentioned, uh, Roselli, and uh, kind of reflect it back with Paula because I think you touched upon two topics. One was. Uh, Multilingual communication, I think that's definitely a big trend that we saw. Uh, One example that I thought was quite poignant was from France that is quite known to be very strong in their French communication. Uh, And for the very first time, they started providing multilingual uh, communication first only about COVID, but then there was a spillover effect, and they also started providing multilingual communication uh, about their integration program, and this is uh, there to stay, and this is quite a significant departure from previous uh, strategies. So I'm very curious, Paula, uh, how this um, plays out, uh, how it has played out in Canada, and will it be lasting, and do you see it spilling over beyond health? Uh, And maybe a second topic I would like you to touch upon also uh, brought up uh, is what I've also heard in multiple conversations is really uh, different groups emerging on the policymakers agenda, Uh, for example, uh, including um, uh, irregular migrants. So we had different cities or countries where irregular migrants would often go underneath the radar, they were not depending much on on government support, they would not go to the health clinics or the food banks, but then COVID hit, they lost their livelihoods, and then they appeared, uh, for example, at food banks, and suddenly there was an awareness of these groups. Uh, And we could say the same about maybe children of migrant or migration origin in in schools and inequalities there that they're facing, and also I think migrant women and and, Uh, Domestic violence, I think, has also been a big topic. It's a lot to cover, but feel free to pick a few that appeal to you, Paula. Uh, Maybe start with multilingual communication. And then I would love to encourage everyone to share their questions in the Q&A. We already received a few, and then we'll move to that uh, after this uh, answer.
1: Thank you, Yasmin. You've thrown a lot at me. So I will try and uh, cover as many topics as I can. So first on multilingual communication, I think this is a real challenge for us here in Canada because we already have uh, two languages that we support and support firmly throughout uh, the country. And so while our official communications are probably not going to remain in multilingual format, what we have noticed is that our settlement partners, our organizations are providing some of taking our material and translating it. We're also, we do a yearly, um, Newcomer outcome Survey, where we survey uh, newcomers over a number of years to find out how they used our services and what they used. And that is something that we're starting to do to provide and send out in multilingual formats targeted to specific groups. So that is something that we're doing differently in an effort to try and make sure that we can hear uh, voices from other people Uh, in the community and our newcomers to make sure that they are um, getting the information that they need. Um, So, yes, our our service provider organizations do continue in uh, providing services multilingually. We provide translators, but official communications will remain in English and French for the most part. Uh, Moving on to other groups. So, yes, vulnerable newcomers are one of uh, the things that we really do try to figure out what we can do. Uh, We're really fortunate. We have, um, just before the pandemic, we had a um, gender-based violence uh, strategy that we put in place so that uh, if we find that newcomer women are in a situation where, uh, or newcomers in general, not just women, but certainly it tends to be uh, violence, gender-based violence is disproportionately targeted at women. We do have ways that they can um, apply to our program, immigration programs so that they don't lose their sponsorship, for example, they don't lose their opportunity to stay in Canada. And we think this is a really important innovation because it doesn't disadvantage um, newcomers or those who are in precarious uh, situations. which. I think I'm very proud of that and one of my team members uh, actually worked on that strategy and got it passed. So we're really, it's close to our hearts. We also have a uh, racialized newcomer women pilot. So this is a pilot where, Uh, racially newcomer racialized newcomer women can actually apply for supports uh, to start businesses and expand entrepreneurship we know that women don't tend to work as much as men and so in this way we found that um, we can support how our uh, newcomers integrate and with a job reach more people and actually uh be entrepreneurial and find their their way into to integrate into Canada in that way. Um, just two quickly last things we do have a program that's called settlement workers in schools where we support newcomer uh, families in particular uh, with uh, integrating into life in Canada that whether that's Supporting the children or the parents as they work through the and ensuring that the child is in school, if the settlement service uh, provider organization knows that um, there's a language difficulty they'll make sure that there's a translator there in the school to help the parents communicate with the schools. Uh, The program is very uh, successful. It's in every province and territory. And we have found that that breaks down some of those barriers uh, to getting children in schools. And then finally, I would just say, um, irregular migrants is something uh, that we are only starting to explore options on right now. One of our minister's mandate letters, uh, commitments is to explore the um, uh, a regular migration a situation in Canada. We don't have the same, um, you know, our borders are very different uh, compared to Europe where uh, we do have border controls. Uh, there is that we only have one neighbor. Um, and so it's a, it's a different situation, but we did, um, we are looking at this and exploring what that would mean for broader settlement and integration purposes.
0: Great. Yes. Thank you so much for this, this interesting insights. We've received some very interesting questions uh, over the q and box, and I want to encourage everyone to, to send more. Uh, one of the questions we received, and this is a bit of a big picture question, is uh, what are best practices or ways to, for nonprofit organizations, but I could imagine also other stakeholders, to capture the learning during the pandemic? Uh, And I think maybe some interesting points that I found out during some of the interviews that I conducted for this paper is that indeed there was information, we know that there's more people or more migrants participating in the online language course, but then how many, the percentage or the demographic breakdown, there was often no information or data. So indeed, like how there is a sense that certain things work or don't work but real data sometimes is missing. So maybe what are good strategies to capture learning and maybe also beyond data more generally. And I'd like to ask both of you to maybe be a little bit concise in your answer to keep time. I'll right away also add a second question. So you can also pick which one you would like to answer. Um, And this is the role of migrant associations uh, in in, in, uh, answering all the different needs that have been playing out. Uh, and I think I can already add based on the report that indeed we saw a huge role played by migrant organizations, refugee organizations and their own community also playing a big role in whether it was related to vaccination campaigns or information, health related information, but also socioeconomic support or integration. Uh, so I think we see a very, um, important role played there and also an increased recognition and increased formal partnerships with migrant organizations, uh, although I think this could be improved, but I'm very curious also to hear your uh, experiences uh, on these two questions. Rosella, would you like to take it first?
2: So I'll try to be concise. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on nonprofit organization. I understand the constraints that these type of organizations have are very different from what cities have, and uh, I, I think one of the, uh, the main ones that we always hear is lack of funding, lack of capacity. But I would say, one maybe uh, one idea, one method that an uh, organization can do is exactly what some cities are, are, are doing. Uh, really writing down the list of innovations that you have started as a nonprofit uh, um, since the start of the pandemic, even if it's something as simple as. You'd be starting a WhatsApp group with, your, uh, uh, with users and migrant communities and, and, and refugees, and then evaluate and, and collect data. Was this service useful? And do you think that most of, uh, um, of uh, the communities that non-profit organization then tend to um, find it um, useful and, 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 and perhaps uh, a service they would like to keep it um, or, or not? I, I I would start with some something very very sim- simple and uh, down down to heart as as that um, a sort of internal monitoring and, and evaluation of the innovations brought by by the pandemic. Uh, second question: New groups? We said. Um, So what I I found really interesting that at the start of the pandemic, some cities told us we didn't know we had such a big migrant community, like Brazilian community in the Dutch cities, Utrecht, Amsterdam, Um, because, well, um, first of all, maybe they were not using of social benefits and social services. Um, Some of them were maybe over overstaying, and uh, some others um, were uh, were just saying for for a period of time, and they were studying, or they had temporary um, employment contracts. During the pandemic, they lost the, their job, um, and this is where they also they they could not rely on the community support that you were mentioning. Uh, has been, and they had to go to social services and uh, non profit and uh, uh, and cities uh, um, for uh, help. Um, so this was uh, and, and um, uh, going back to uh, the the point about migrant uh, led organization and refugee um, refugees association, um, the, the role was crucial and it was understood by cities. So those cities who then referred back and said, we need your help, because we see that we're facing some new challenges uh, there, or maybe challenges that have been exacerbated by by the pandemic. For example, uh, definitely uh, uh, lack of digital tools. So many migrants, they had no um, access to information that was transferred online and also language barriers uh, there. So um, uh, the, the role became crucial and in many cities uh, that we, we heard, their um, involvement uh, started, I think a process there, uh, we lead to a very, very good uh, cooperation. Like you said, I think a lot needs to be done and we will start working on, on a project exactly on um, um, on co-creation of integration strategies at, at local level. It's called UNITES. And um, what we're trying to do, we also work with two migrants, uh, migrant-led organizations at U-Level, Unity and New Connectors. And we are going to use their expertise and we're gonna bring it to cities. So at a local level of making sure that migrants and refugees are really involved in the design of uh, policies that affect their lives.
0: Great, and Paula, how about you, <laughs> your perspectives on these questions?
2: Uh,
1: yes, I, I conciseness being concise is not my uh, expertise, but I will try my best on best practices and the way to share. I think this is one of the things that we continually hear from our service provider organizations and our stakeholders is a really hard thing to do. We haven't figured that out yet. but. We do know that we encourage both formal and informal sharing of best practices. So for us, uh, through our National Settlement and Integration Council that I spoke about earlier, uh, we do try and make sure that people are having those conversations uh, at the table about what worked and what didn't. But we also encourage our, our, um, our, our our service provider organizations to actually talk to each other to reach out, whether that's through a formal mechanism and meetings, or uh, we know that they've developed uh, Facebook groups to share information, uh, to get, um, you know, what worked for others and, and what didn't, and share materials. Um, so So those are two, you know, we're working on it, I will say it's a work in progress. But that sort of leads me to the role of the, the migrant associations. Because in Canada, we are super fortunate that we have what we call Local Immigration Partnerships or Réseau en Immigration Francophone. This is a network of over 85 organizations across Canada. Often at the and they're at the community level they support planning around the needs of newcomers by bringing together multiple stakeholders whether that's municipalities cities settlement service providers employers Chamber of Commerce school boards health centers migrant organizations uh, faith-based organizations they really are a key uh, tool for us uh, and for the settlement not for us, for the government, but for the settlement community in Canada to come together to work through some of these um, important issues. Um, They encourage a lot of our organizations to adapt their programming and services to address the needs of newcomers, whether that might be French speaking newcomers, employment, housing, education, transit, uh, and they also support the coordination of services at the local or regional level, and they foster those conversations about what uh, what's working, what's not, and how we can support newcomers. So um, and, and that's within the settlement sector, and then they raise awareness in the community about what those needs are, which actually then in turn fosters uh, community integration and acceptance. As an example, during the pandemic, one of our local immigration partnerships in Winnipeg ran a COVID doesn't discriminate, nor should you campaign. uh, That included training on how to respond to racism, just as an example. So there are these really like, I I feel really fortunate in Canada that we have this uh, ability to leverage this network.
0: Absolutely, yes, and I'd like to uh, also refer to all the, all the attendees to uh, both the report, but also just uh, IRCC's website. There's really interesting examples of and models of collaboration, and especially also bringing a wide variety of stakeholders together, uh, as you were mentioning, uh, and also the different formats of collaboration are very interesting, and I think uh, definitely a best practice to emulate uh, also in other locations when possible. I would like to share one uh, great comment that we still received, Uh, Luca Barani from the European Commission mentioned that indeed 5% of the AMIF fund uh, is allocated to to cities and the local level, so that is a great uh, uh, change, of course, this started in 2021, Um, so that definitely shows this this recognition and this access to funding. That being said, I have one eye on the clock and uh, we are about to wrap up this wonderful uh, discussion. I would love to continue discussing with you for much longer. Um, I would like to thank the audience. Uh, Apologies if we could not answer your question. We'll get back to you via email uh, with more answers uh, whenever possible. Uh, And there will be an audio and video recording available of this event uh, and some closing remarks. We've heard about a lot of innovation, different lessons learned. We were really talking about back in the day, it feels a long time ago in the pandemic, yet we are now facing new challenges and we will be facing new challenges in the years to come that we cannot even foresee yet. And many of the new uh trends or accelerated trends including these stakeholder partnerships uh including uh moving different services online and how to do that in an inclusive way can really point us in a more cost-effective uh direction and uh, more inclusive societies going forward um so i think it's very important to reflect on that and what is very important i think one of the questions in the q a pointed at that is How do we solidify what we've learned? How do we make sure that we take these lessons and make sure that they shape future policies? And this is often what is lacking after something like this happened. We saw it after 2015-16. You see a huge bust in amazing initiatives. And then a lot of what has been developed gets lost. And it's very important right now, even though our eyes are already glued uh, to the a new situation, a new challenge to take time and to allocate resources, to evaluate, reflect, what works, what can we scale up uh, under what conditions um, and how can we make these platforms more sustainable uh, and learn from each other. And I think this report is one small uh, contribution to this endeavor, but I think a lot of more work uh, would be needed. Um, thank you all so much for joining today and for your active participation. Uh, all reporters that are on the call, you may contact Michelle Mittelstadt at uh, m, well, I think the email is listed, so I won't have to read it out, mmittelstadt at migrationpolicy.org, also to be found on our website. And the report we've been talking about today and also contributions from our excellent panelists and more interesting different uh, examples are all to be found in our new uh, report, The COVID-19 Catalyst, Learning from Pandemic-Driven Innovations in Immigrant Integration Policy. And I would like to wish all of you a wonderful day and feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Thank you so much.